As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Weekend Review! We are looking back on a weekend where Everton came to the Merseyside derby and tried everything in their locker, except actually playing soccer, where Bayern Munich won the Meisterschale and threw some beer as Dortmund couldn't come near. Marco Rosa's men made a mess of dealing with the press and looked to be a little way off league success. Elsewhere, Milan went closer to bringing the title home with a massive win in Rome. PSG won silverware and a lot of their fans don't seem to care. And Barcelona gave their fans the sads as we wonder if they're once again bad. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who dominates podcasting like Divock Origi dominates Liverpool. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. For like 10 minutes at a time near the end of the episode, that's when I'm brought on to dominate. I'll take that. I'll take the super sub role on this podcast. Yeah, I'll, I'll say you are 80 minutes plus orgy for the entirety of podcasts. How's that? <laughs> I that think help? that's a compliment. I think I'll take that. Oh, man, it's a compliment, particularly against Everton. He does. He gives them no quarter, Tay-Tay. He does not. <laughs> he does not. He has some Funus Mori-related beef. We can get into all that later. <laughs> we shall, meanwhile, Taylor, introduce our other member of the pod today who has more impact than a 90th-minute Christian Pulisic winner, Graham Rutherford. Hello! <laughs> Hello, hello. That's the nicest thing I think you've ever said about me, uh, Ryan. I didn't watch Chelsea. I did see that Pip Pulisic scored a goal, so maybe it is an insult, and uh, I just haven't clocked that it's an insult. Hmm. No, it's not an insult. I mean, oh, thanks. You, you get more game time than Pulisic on in podcast terms, I'd say. Maybe that's a, more of an that's issue true. for the US than you, though. Yeah, definitely. Graham, we have to talk. You've been away this weekend. You haven't watched 428 games. You've just watched about 417 games this weekend <laughs> because you've been on what I shall describe as a Portuguese bachelor party. Discuss. Uh, one of my friends is getting married this summer. Uh, and first wedding. Had watched, Graham's first uh, wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, besides my own, yeah. Of course. <laughs> and um, he had what's known in, in Britain as a stag do, which I, I'm led to believe is the same as a bachelor's party, and it was in Portugal. So a Friday and Saturday night in Portugal meant that I wasn't able to watch as much football as I would have liked, but we did all watch Kilmarnock versus Arbroath on Friday night. Priorities, of course. <laughs> so you watched that in Portugal, Graham? That's right, we did, yes. <laughs> you found a bar in Portugal showing that game? A Scottish bar, yes. We had to get them to change the channel. We had to tell them what channel it was on, but they managed to find that channel and we were all very happy. Not by full time, though, because, spoiler alert, our both lost. Ah, well, we'll hear more about that later, perhaps, G. Uh, Taylor, are your thoughts on bachelor parties slash stags? Do you enjoy them? Not really. Uh, but, you know, I, that's that's maybe me being a, a crafty veteran at this point who uh, has two-day hangovers nowadays. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they're my, my favorite thing, but I also feel like... Going to a Scottish pub in Portugal to watch a lower-level Scottish club and then have some beers. That does sound really, like, lovely. I would enjoy that, I think, more so than Vegas or something along those lines. The stuff that followed wasn't so lovely. lovely, That makes more sense. (laughs) (laughs) I'm picturing inflatables and uh, hijinks, Graham. Yes, lipstick. A lot of lipstick. (laughs) Oh, boy! (laughs) 
Let's move on, <laughs> shall we, to the soccer. Plenty to talk about from this weekend. Why don't we start off? Uh, Everton certainly didn't have as much fun as Graham on a bachelor party. They lost 2-0 to Liverpool in the Merseyside derby. What might be uh, the last Merseyside derby in a while? No shots on target in the first half, it says here. Crazy. Uh, then we had the goals, of course, from Andy Robertson and Divock Origi, the aforementioned, to seal it. Uh, Taylor... Frank Lampard embracing his inner Diego Simeone, it seemed like here, a little bit. Only seven yellow cards issued in the entire game. It felt like there was one every couple of minutes to me. It did. And I wasn't sure if you meant because of their tactics or the way he was raging at the officials after the game. But either way, yeah, there was there's some Simeone aspects to this, including the pivot to the the very defensive 5-4-1, uh, but then also having the team execute that game plan pretty effectively. They blocked off options for Liverpool. They really frustrated their opponent, which is a thing that Atleti have done in the past to Liverpool, and we know they're capable of doing. Uh, and then I think Everton also showed that they can play pretty effectively on the break. They can play good defensive soccer, good transition soccer, but then ultimately they showed that Liverpool are a very, very good team who will eventually find a way through if you're not on your game 100% for all 90-plus minutes. That's an interesting point, Taylor. They Everton did have some ways through here, didn't they? They caused some problems to Liverpool's mm-hmm. back line. They were pretty good on the counter. Gordon had a, a good game when he wasn't you know, on the floor for, most, for the most part, I thought. <laughs> if they just had a little bit more conviction in the final third and a little less poop-housery, Taylor... Yeah. Could Everton have maybe squeezed a draw out of this? Because I, I actually did predict I thought this would be a draw. Yeah, I think they probably could have because there are those moments that you're referencing with Gordon going down. I think the first one especially, I do personally think that was almost completely a dive. I know there is a little bit of contact there, but you can see the way he sort of throws that leg in midair. And to me, you sometimes you'll do that if there is a little bit of contact and it's delayed. But other times, to me, it felt like he anticipated there was contact and then sold it. But watching it again, he's still dribbling in the box. He still has possession. And I don't quite know why he goes to ground there because there are passes on. He could pull another move and get a shot off. He could have created there. And it felt like going for the potential easier option and it not coming off. And I think that happened a couple different times. I know that Frank Lampard was really frustrated by the officiating, felt like there should have been penalties. I believe they've written a letter of complaint to the FA. I don't know if anything will happen from that because ultimately Everton (laughs) not able to do that much on the day. Liverpool able to do two big things uh, at least twice. Indeed. Uh, We will get to Liverpool in a second, Liverpool fans, but I do want to dig in a little bit more to Everton, um, who did slip into the relegation zone with this one, with Burnley winning as well. Uh, They've been in the top flight 68 years. Graham, can you tell me one team who's been in the top flight for longer than Everton? Fun, Fun fact for you. Uh, are they current? Well, must be currently in the Premier League. So Manchester United have been relegated uh, since then. So Liverpool? It's Arsenal. 78 oh. years they've been in the top flight. I wouldn't have guessed that either, but the stats told me that, Graham. Uh, but more on Everton, uh, or dollar store, Atletico Madrid, as I'd like to call them. <laughs> the plan here was to disrupt. It was to waste time. They were fairly dramatic at points, but they did have this good counter-attacking game going on as well, as we say. But 17% possession, the second lowest possession stat since Optus started compiling them. Apparently mm-hmm. the other one was Swansea versus Man City in 2018, which was also 17 points something. Um, do, do you think Everton went about this the right way? Could they have done it any other way, Graham? No, I don't think they could have. And the reason we're maybe talking about Everton more than Liverpool in this game is because Liverpool did what Liverpool uh, do in this match and eventually they get the goals that the balance of, on, of the performance they probably deserve. But Everton, this was something different that we saw from Everton. And for the first time this season, I think we saw Lampard acknowledge the situation that Everton are in and also the shortcomings of his team. So one of the fears I had about Lampard as Everton manager was that he would go toe-to-toe with every opponent and try to outscore them and play this very open and ambitious game when Everton at this moment are just not capable of doing that. And that's sort of what he has done as Everton have tumbled down the table. But as the two of you have already kind of explained... Lampard goes very Simeone or very Jose Mourinho. Remember, Lampard played under Jose Jose Mourinho when Jose Mourinho was actually Jose Mourinho and has absorbed a lot of those ideas, maybe. And so he takes a leaf out of his book and they stay compact and they, they push the wingers back to help out the fullbacks and prevent Liverpool from finding space out wide, which is obviously where they cause so many problems. They were slowing down the game. As you say, Anthony Gordon, DeCorey as well. I thought he was doing a good job of of, uh, 
of carrying the ball. I like the idea that Diego Simeone was watching this match because Atleti had a free weekend. There was no La Liga games this weekend besides Barcelona. I like the idea that Simeone was watching this match <laughs> and wondering how Atleti missed this uh, South American poop houser uh, who was a teenager who was doing such a good job for Everton and then someone someone in his recruitment staff tells him actually that he's from uh, Liverpool. He's a scouser called Anthony Gordon because <laughs> yeah. he very much seemed like an Atleti player and Richarlison as well was very much doing that sort of Atleti thing. But it, it was a strange game for Everton because while this is the result that sends them into the bottom three for, I think, the first time this season because Burnley win over, they, they beat Wolves earlier in the day, there was some encouragement for Everton to take from this performance in terms of the fundamentals of what they were trying to do. They're going to have to play this way again this season because they've got a really difficult run-in between yes, now and the end of the season. They've got Chelsea next weekend, then they've got Leicester City, then they've got an informed Brentford team, Crystal Palace, who are capable, as, we, as we've seen this season, and then Arsenal on the final day of the, se- of the season. So of the six matches they've got left, only one, Watford, is a game that Everton truly could expect to win. And so Lampard's going to have to look at this game plan as something to build on and how, yes, Liverpool get the win here in the end, but they did stop the best team in the country, possibly the best team in, in Europe on form at the moment. They stopped them for 60 minutes and they limited them, limited them to barely anything. I think Everton finished this first half with a higher expected goals value than Liverpool, despite having 17% of the possession. And yes, it was extreme at times. There was a 10-minute spell in this match where Everton had 9% of possession and Liverpool had 91%. So you may you maybe don't want to go to that level of extreme, but Lampard, just because it didn't get them a result in this game, doesn't mean Lampard should throw out this game plan. He used he needs to use this in the next few weeks, I think. Yeah, Graham, I think that's a really smart point that I hadn't considered because looking at the remaining schedule for both Everton and Burnley, Burnley's at Watford, home to Villa, at Spurs, at Villa, home to Newcastle. Not sure how they have Villa twice in the final five games or so, uh, but I, I felt for sure like Burnley have a, a better schedule, a weaker schedule. They seem to be informed. They seem to have figured some things out. But you're right that Everton, with this system, with this style, being more defensive, fighting for everything, they don't get the win here, but it is going to be more effective against stronger teams, and you've got at least three stronger teams left to play on their schedule. It could work against Chelsea, it could work against Leicester, maybe at Arsenal on that final day. And that does potentially let them pick up points in games that they certainly would would not have a couple weeks ago. So it does make things much more interesting. It still feels very, very strange to me that we're talking about Everton in the relegation zone for the amount of money they have, for the amount of history they have and talent that they currently have in their squad, but have had recently. I mean, Carlo Ancelotti managing them not too long ago with James Rodriguez in there. It just feels very odd that they are in this position. Yeah, £560 million spent in transfer fees uh, under Mashiri since his takeover. More than Liverpool, both in total and net outlay, says the Mm, Guardian. Wowzers, yeah. Um, Can I give a glimmer of hope, Taylor, to that run-in, though, for for, for Everton? Chelsea, as you say, then at Leicester and at Watford, Brentford Palace, then at Arsenal. I would argue there's only two teams who have something to play for there, Chelsea and Arsenal. The others might have their flip-flops on a little bit. Is that fair to say? Does that help Everton? Or do they need to be playing a a side competing for something, Taylor? I'm not sure. I mean, I I think we're going to find out a lot in that Chelsea game because the atmosphere, obviously, for the game against Liverpool was up. The players were up. The supporters were up. The manager was up. Everybody was ready for this game. But that's because it is one of your biggest rivals, if not the biggest rival for Everton. And so to then have to go and play other teams that are equally strong or not maybe not equally strong but pretty strong themselves do the fans rise to the occasion do the players continue to get up or is there a feeling of complacency is there a feeling of ah it is what it is i'm going to be sold so it doesn't really matter cuz i do think burnley showed there is fight there is an intensity to their approach and i agree with graham that we saw more of that from everton than we've seen recently i just don't know if we saw enough of it in the moment to really sustain them for the rest of the season. I did enjoy some of the housery, though, that you mentioned, Ryan, especially (laughs) Jordan Pickford catching a ball in injury time (laughs) in the first half and falling over and really milking that clock. But I enjoyed that mostly because then Allison has the uh, corresponding sequence at the very end of the game when he falls over and gets the the cheer from the crowd. I like that little that little reference there, that little dig, and a little reminder to Everton that you can time waste all you want. We're still Liverpool. We're still going to score goals. The, the best part of that, Taylor, was that Alisson did it with a completely straight face. When oh, Pickford yeah. did it, he was like winking and laughing. <laughs> Alisson just completely straight. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm, I'm the daddy here, okay? 
<laughs> it was a bit I, early for a wink as well from Pickford. It was like the yeah. end of the first half. You're thinking you've got this again to go in the second half. Don't celebrate just <laughs> yeah, yet. It's like when it's like when smaller teams who are like nil nil against a stronger team and their fans start olaying in the 30th minute. It's like what? Why? Why are you poking the bear? Do you not know how this is going to play out? Don't do that. Don't do that, Jordan Pickford. Don't wink at the camera. It's not a great look. <laughs> not indeed. Not indeed. Um, Graham, we should probably talk about Liverpool for a little bit. Uh, who probably. Were, you know, particularly second half, pretty good here. Luis Diaz, we should probably talk about him. Particularly that ball which he stopped uh-huh. the crossfield pass with his back heel, with his, with his standing foot. I, I can't even describe it. it oh yeah, a very good stop of the ball with with his um with his heel behind his standing foot. That's the best way I can describe it. Is he the best signing this season, Graham? And what else did you take from Liverpool here? Um, best signing this season. I would maybe have to think a little bit longer about that, but certainly a, a January signing. I don't think there's any there's any contest. I can't think of anyone else who's had a, a greater impact. As we've said a number of times on the podcast, he looks like he's been playing for Liverpool for years, and he comes off the bench in the second half along with Divock Origi. And there's just a lot more drive and physicality from Liverpool in in the box. And Jurgen Klopp, basically, one of the things that was most impressive about this Liverpool performance once they made those changes was Klopp kind of did the thing that a lot of managers do when they're chasing a goal where he throws attackers on. And when teams do that, sometimes it can just get a bit congested and it can actually be counterproductive, you know, where where players teams just have too many players in the box and it all gets too busy. Whereas Klopp kind of is able to trust his players, despite the fact there's sometimes six players in that box, to find the space and have the technical ability, the way that Origi kind of creates the opportunity for the first goal where the, the ball's played back to, I think it's Salah, who plays it to the back post for Andy Robertson. He, he knows that his players are able to do that in tight spaces. And so that was an impressive thing about Origi. Um, Origi, we have to talk about him. He's now got six goals in nine games against Everton. He's scored more goals against them in, than any other Premier League team in his career. So as soon as he came off the bench, you just kind of knew he was going to have a an impact on, 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 on this match. And I actually think he has a good option for Liverpool to have. And if he leaves this summer, which seems to be the case, I think he's out of contract this summer and the chat is that he's going to finally go to another club and try and find first-team football, I think they might actually miss him, not on a weekly game-to-game basis, but in two or three crucial matches per season, probably against Everton. Yeah, at least two uh, games they will miss. Yeah, they, they, will, they will miss having that alternative off the bench because a lot of that Liverpool front line are very similar. And I mean that as a compliment, you know, Firmino, Salah, Mane, Jota, Diaz, they all, there's a lot of overlap there in their qualities. Origi brings something different and um, yeah, yeah I, th- I think they might miss him a little bit. I think he brings something different. He also, like, at least to my knowledge, obviously wants to maybe change this at the end of the season, but brings in acceptance of, yeah, I can be a super sub. I can be an impact player in a specific role when needed. And it reminds me of, like, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in his days with Manchester United, where he was the super sub who would come on and score four goals in one game. But it was because he was kind of evaluating and knew what was needed when he came on. Origi seems to be sort of similar for Liverpool, that he can still do some of the the kind of fluid transition things, the link-up plays you talked about, Graham, there. He is the one-two with Salah that sets up that first goal. But then he has an attentiveness and alertness in the box to challenge for things. And it's worth noting that second goal for Liverpool, it's the Luis Diaz, not bike. Uh, I I watched this a bunch of times because I wanted to get it right because I felt like Graham would call me out if I got my terminology wrong. But it's just more of a a volley, but it's Mm -hmm. the kind of flying side volley. But as Luis Diaz is, I think, not even hitting it yet, but is kind of in the air shaping to hit it, Origi is already turning and timing his run. You can see him looking down the line to make sure he's on. And that's why when that ball is, I think, mishit, and it bounces to Origi there at the back post, that's why he's able to attack it with such intensity, because he's not desperately trying to get on the end of it. He's put himself in a position to be right there where he needs to be to put it in, and he does. And I agree with Graham. I think that's a thing that will be missed, because he is just a presence in the box that when it comes down to it, you're playing a team that's defensive and sitting in and trying to frustrate and trying to slow down. You've got to find your moments, and that's exactly what Origi does here. And I would say as much positivity as we've had about Everton, that first goal comes from Seamus Coleman just completely switching off at the back post and yeah. leaving Andy Robertson wide open. And those are the types of mistakes you cannot afford when you're in a relegation battle. So even though it's a better performance for Everton, there are still those red flags. There are still those worrying signs. I would say less so for Liverpool, uh, who have to be pretty pleased with a 2-0 win against Everton. Yeah, definitely in a game of this context as well, Taylor. Uh, Villarreal coming up midweek as well for Liverpool. Nice prep for them. Uh, Liverpool still on for a treble, of course. Um, Quadruple. 
But yeah, I suppose, yeah, that, that too, Graham. How many pieces <laughs> of that puzzle are they going to complete, do you think, Graham? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly think they've got a good chance of doing all four. I mean, they've got the, they've got the Carabao Cup already. They're into the Champions League semifinals where you would fancy them, them to beat Villarreal, despite the fact that Unai Emery will have taken a lot of encouragement of how, uh, from how Everton's game plan worked here because Villarreal are going to play in a similar way except they are a better team with better quality and have used a similar system to beat Juventus and Bayern Munich so that might be one to watch but nonetheless Liverpool are a far superior team in terms of their individual talent so I think they'll make the final of that they're in the final of the FA Cup I think they have the momentum in the Premier League title race as well so let just for the sake of predictions I'll say they'll I, I think they'll get three and the one they'll miss out on will be the Premier League oh Taylor how do you feel about that that's a good shout because I'm trying to figure out which one I I would rather win, and there like it seems like Champions League is the obvious one, but winning the league is so much more a reflection of the whole season and how you, how good you have been over the length of that season, and especially when it comes to the other team that will be challenging them, Man City, and how strong they are. I don't know. I don't know which one I think they will end up winning if they're going to win both. It's strange that we could see Liverpool have an incredibly good season and win a quadruple, but also have a really bad season, I guess, and win, like, only, what, one of them? So I think in the end, they will definitely win some silverware. I have plenty of Liverpool friends enough to say that I hope it's not, like, just the FA Cup. I, w- I would hope it's it's a split. Uh, and maybe, I think they're level on titles with Manchester United, so maybe Liverpool win the Champions League, Man City win uh, the Premier League. I'm okay with that. I am too, Taylor, but I don't have a dog in this fight. What do I know? But uh, a few other teams did win titles this weekend, not least Bayern Munich. We're going to talk about them. We're going to round up the Premier League. We're going to go round the houses and all the big leagues after this short break. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Before we get to Dear Classica, let's take a look around the houses in the Premier League. Arsenal 3, Manchester United 1. A game, Taylor, which I'll describe as a series of VAR decisions occasionally <laughs> interrupted by soccer. Some of them like four or five Oof. minutes long in this. Goodness me. We had a missed penalty from Bruno, uh, which kind of proved to be a turning point in the game. Granite Xhaka with his annual 30-yard banger here. Uh, Man United's top four hopes pretty dented if they weren't already by yeah. this game. And Arsenal somewhat helped their second big win in a week Taylor uh yeah a, a big win for Arsenal another big day for VAR as you said Ryan did we also have a goal scored disallowed but then a penalty given on the same sequence did that all happen at the same time or am I just getting my VAR memories uh blended because there were so many of them in this game you may have blended because there was more VAR than actual soccer in this game yeah <laughs> but yeah that was that was some impressive VAR use I would say an impressive performance from Arsenal less so for Manchester United uh, and I really did find myself watching this game thinking about the approaches that these two teams have taken that Arsenal have had times when it did not feel like things were working under Ateta that maybe he wasn't the right man for the job but if you're looking for like exhibit a in his argument of why he is I would point to this one because Mm. you have a rejuvenated Arsenal team with a lot of young players who are now kind of seeing themselves rising to prominence or already in prominent positions he's moved on some of the players that did not seem to fit with what he wanted or were just sort of standing out and not fitting in and in contrast you have this Manchester United team under an interim manager with a bunch of signings that don't really seem like they're fitting they're not playing collective football and you could see that time and time again in this one that there was no Real sort of coordinated attempt to press, a lot of hand-waving and yelling at each other while Arsenal passed around them with five to ten yards of space. Uh, 
pretty much most of the time. And it really did just stand out to me as one team having a pretty clear idea of how they want to play and being able to execute that game plan and the intricacies thereof. And then there's Manchester United who do the opposite. So I think Arsenal deserved winners. And I do think Manchester United very much going to miss the top four. And again, deservedly so, because there are just better teams ahead of them. Taylor, this, this, is the, this is the first time that we've, I think, spoken since Ten Hag's been confirmed mm-hmm. as, the, as the new Man United manager from next, for the start of next season. One of the, the things I think Arsenal have done really well since uh, Arteta's been appointed is they've, they've moved on a lot of players, and that seems to have been a big issue for Manchester United. I didn't watch this match, so using your eyes, when you see Man United play like this, which of the players are there, are there that Ten Hag can build around and how many are going to have to leave? Is it going to have to be a complete rebuild or is it not going to be as drastic as that uh, once Graham, Ten Hag comes in? I'll jump in. Uh, De Gea and Sancho, everyone else can go. Uh, <laughs> Anthony Alonga's pretty good. I'd keep Anthony okay. Alonga. Uh, yeah, aside from that, it, it's kind of, you can move him on. It's it's really odd to feel that way. And, and like, this is such a, a silly gauge for it, but it's what I will use. When I play, like, FIFA career mode, I will usually try to keep most of that team, and I want Pogba to be happy. I love Paul Pogba. When he is in form, I think he can do things with a ball at his feet that no one else on the planet can do uh, because he has that physicality. We've talked about it so many times. He can hold off seven people at once while completing a pass, but... Nowadays, I'm just sort of okay with most of them being moved on because it just feels like they don't really care that much. And that was such a hallmark of Manchester United for so long that to see a team just sort of going through the motions and not even doing that particularly convincingly, it makes me feel like, yeah, there's not a ton to build around. Sancho took his time, but I think he is playing better. David De Gea routinely keeps games closer than they have any business being. And I think Alanga has shown that he can do do the job if need be. But it's really odd to be talking about a club that has Marcus Rashford and Bruno Fernandes and many other players that I've really enjoyed and like thought would be there for a long time. Juan Basaka, another one. And now I, I am sort of okay if they get moved on because it just doesn't feel like there's much cohesiveness to this team. And maybe that's something Ten Hag sorts or maybe that's something he sorts by bringing in a bunch of academy mm. players and figuring it out from there. Oh. I didn't. I didn't watch this match, but I did catch Paul Scholes after the game oh. saying, "I had a I had a chat with Jesse yeah. Lingard after the match, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but the dressing room is a disaster." Are you sure he's not going to mind you saying I that, Paul? It feels like something he might have a problem with. Yeah, I'm sure he won't that... mind me throwing him under the bus entirely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can we talk about that for a moment, genuinely? Because I like. It, I, I really was wondering if it is the case that Lingard said, like, yeah, you can quote me on that. Like, what does that mean? Or was it or do you really think it is just much more likely that Paul Scholes misspoke in the moment? Yeah, I think that's more likely. But if, if Lingard did say it's OK to quote me on that, that is the sign of a player whose contract is up in two months yeah. and is not going to be at that club for any longer. That has to be Paul Scholes taking liberties there, surely, Taylor. I guess so. It's just it's just surprising because you would assume that a player would want to Let me put it this way. I would assume that if you bring in Ralph Rangnick to see out the season, he has the two-year consultancy. You would assume that they're working towards a plan of he is going to evaluate the squad, figure out who works, figure out who doesn't. You're bringing in a manager who kind of will reflect Rangnick's style or Rangnick reflects his. They'll work together to to build the team and continue to kind of have them develop into a stronger unit. And instead, it feels like the players are kind of openly talking about how this has not worked. Uh, There was a report last week that Rangnick was not consulted in the hiring of Ten Hag, or at least not in the early rounds. And so it continues to feel like a pretty dysfunctional club with a lot of angry people. And it does not seem like one managerial appointment is going to solve things, at least in the near future. It can't, Taylor. It can't. I mean, I've watched two Man United games in the past week. I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm stunned (laughs) myself. But... I can't believe there are 14 teams in the Premier League who are worse than them by the table at the very least. It, it's just incredible. The rot, Taylor, I, I think you're right. Ten Hag isn't going to be a magical fix overnight. And if they get rid of Ranić, I think there's talk of him not going upstairs next year as well. So all the usefulness that he's had over this season will just, you know, they'll, they'll go away. He's seen how things are. He could maybe help yeah. if he did move up. If that, if they... If they, you know, get rid of that as well, that's another terrible decision this team has made. It's just top to bottom, Taylor. This club Mm -hmm. is a mess. I I think, to your point about 14 clubs, Ryan, I think, I don't even mean this to be disrespectful, though it may still be. If you changed the name of the clubs and made Manchester United Everton, I think they lose more games. Because I think there is still an element of it's Man United, it's Ronaldo, 
it's Bruno, it's Cavani, it's Rashford, Sancho. They've got so much talent. They could hit us at any moment. And I think that still, the name recognition still gives Manchester United a little bit of dominance. And I think that has been brought back to earth a lot of late. But if they continue on this trajectory, I think we go back to when, was it David Moyes who kept losing games for the first time in 50 years or 60 years and Manchester United lost yeah. to like eight opponents for the first time in their entire history or something? Mm. It feels like that's where we're going, where it's just no longer really that scary. A, a very good example of this would be Jermaine Genus talking about um, uh, Lampard's comments about Liverpool getting favoritism. And, you know, anytime you go to Anfield, you know that this is just how it's going to be. And Janice said, that is my my experience. If Anfield was like that, Old Trafford, when Manchester United were, when, were Manchester United, was like that. And it just felt like a very solid dig of, yeah, that's not who they are anymore. And it's not who they're going to be in the near future. And that would be very worrying uh, were I in a position of authority at Manchester United. Sadly, I am not. Mm. You hate to see it, Taylor, unless you support any other team <laughs> yeah. in the world. In which case unless you... you like any other team. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In which case, you love to see it. Uh, what I also love to see is uh, Jane Sancho Simpsons tattoos. How have I got this far in my life and not realized right? he has all five Simpsons on his bicep? Goodness me. And none of them are peeing on anything, which is always a good sign. Anytime you have, like, Calvin peeing on something, I don't think that's a great look. So I was ready for it to be Bart doing something disrespectful. But it just seems to be a, a genuine loving homage to the Simpsons, which I enjoyed. It's uh, Bart is holding the weapon with the, the catapult, isn't it? It's a classic Bart pose he's got as well. It's like 1990 Bart. Very impressive stuff from Jaden Sancho. Are you talking about a slingshot? A slingshot. What did I call it? A catapult. Is that not the same yeah. thing? <laughs> it's like he's got medieval warfare. It's, it's, it's going to be an interesting Bart Simpson episode. <laughs> Anywho, uh, let's move <laughs> on to the rest of the Premier League, shall we? Mm. Uh, Man City 5, Watford 1. Jesus, or Jesus, coming to life just after Easter. Boom, boom. Four <laughs> goals from a City striker. You don't see that very often. And an absolute banger from Rodri as well, getting that from distance. If you haven't seen that, listener, go check it out. Uh, a good result for Watford when you consider the last time they came to the Etihad, they lost 8-0. Hey, uh, Man progress. City, uh, says Opta Joe, have become the first English team in history, English league team in history, to win 15 consecutive competitive matches against a specific opponent Watford so yeah not uh, you can if, if you're a betting person you can usually tell which direction that game is going to go into uh, Norwich nil Newcastle three two goals from Joe Linton here um, Brendan Gamaris getting the third uh, Newcastle's fourth consecutive league win uh, the stats I think it's up to Joe as well Taylor saying only Liverpool have picked up as many points as Newcastle uh, in their last four 15 games at the turn of the year Newcastle were in 19th place they are now in 9th place Taylor um, we can say what we want about the controversies of the takeover and we have done indeed but with the business they've done in January 19th to 9th now it's kind of impressive right I mean, sure but I think anytime you've got the <laughs> amount of money they have behind them to be able to go out and buy what will probably end up being one of the best players in Europe next season mm. for a good amount of money, but it's also not amount of money that Mike Ashley was spending previously. I think they're able to reinforce, and we said it at the time when the takeover happened, or at least maybe just after, that I have to believe there is a level of comfort that knowing that there is that amount of money behind your club now, mm. that it just brings an easing of the tension, that there isn't that pressure of how are we going to find a way to play in a back three when we don't have any wingbacks that are healthy or haven't signed any wingbacks in four years or don't have any central midfielders. I think knowing that there are reinforcements and that there will continue to be reinforcements, right now, I imagine, it's a very comforting thing. Maybe once you reach the end of the season and you realize that, hey, I was a Mike Ashley, Rafa Benitez guy, and there seem to be a lot of new faces coming in. I wonder how long I'm going to be at this club. Maybe that's when there's a slight turn in fortune. But for now, uh, it definitely deserves some praise for the uh, turnaround they've had. And uh, well done, Eddie Howe. But I think, yeah, money helps with things, unless, of course, you're Manchester United. Yeah. When you signed a few seasons ago, Taylor, and suddenly your parking spot, you have to take a park and ride to get to training. Exactly. Yeah, that's when you realize that the revolution is, is happening. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, but we... As I say, I'm not going to roll over and tickle Newcastle on the belly for doing so well here, but you look at a team like Everton who spent a lot of money and then you see what Newcastle spent, relatively yeah. speaking. I'm just saying it's a pretty good feat for them. And uh, and also I think Howe has, has done a lot with the players that he inherited mm -hmm. as well. The, the the prime example being Joe Linton, who all of a sudden is one of the, the best central midfielders in, in the Premier League on recent form. Keep in mind that he was written off as a £30 million flop as a centre-forward when Howe arrived. So he has he has got more out of the players that, that were already at the club. But um, 
along the lines of Taylor Stotts. I am reluctant to give them too much praise, but they are they are likely to be a force next season. You would say they're going to have a big summer and maybe even European football might be on radar next season. Maybe so. Yay. Anyway, Leicester nil, Aston Villa nil. Uh, some scrappy nonsense from two teams with nothing to play for. Brentford nil, Tottenham nil. Uh, Christian Eriksen facing his former side again. He was in pretty good form here and actually went over to the Spurs fans and signed some shirts for them at the end, which was quite nice. But not so nice for Tottenham, who are falling off the pace a little bit. No shots on target in their last two games. Uh, Chelsea won, West Ham nil. Uh, Christian Pulisic, the aforementioned, the hero of the day with that 90th minute goal. Uh, he broke a snap of Chelsea losing at West Ham. Actually, I think they'd lost their last three visits to uh, the Hammer Dome, whatever we're going to call it these days. Pulisic's seventh goal of the season. Taylor, are we concerned? Yes, he's getting um, a decent amount of goals for the amount of minutes he's getting, but enough game time in a World Cup year for Christian Pulisic? I will see how uh, the, the summer goes and how things play out for Chelsea. But no, I mean, I think it's it's frustrating that it does feel like he could have a couple of really good games, but with the amount of talent they have and just the number of mouths that need to eat, he is inevitably going to find his way to the bench in favor of other players who cost just as much money as he did. So, yeah, I think it's not an ideal situation when it comes to Chelsea in general for their kind of current precarious position, but also for the amount of talent they have. I don't think it's great either. I don't know if changing clubs is the solution uh, because you've got the kind of preseason and then a few months and then we're in trouble. But overall, I think... Uh, yeah, I would love to see him starting every game day in and day out. I think that probably helps with his confidence, and he does seem to be a player who rides that confidence pretty effectively, pretty regularly. Yeah. T- Timo Werner has become a problem for Pulisic, the form that yep. he's in recently. He he feels like a better option, and particularly how Chelsea are playing with that front two with Havertz and, and Werner. I'm not sure Pulisic is as effective in, in a front two as Timo Werner, so yeah, that that's an issue for him. Yeah. Tuchel teaching him how to be onside and put shots on target, really affecting Pulisic's career in (laughs) Chelsea thus far. Uh, Burnley won, Wolves nil. A really big win for Burnley this one, and massive with Everton losing as well. This one took Burnley out of the relegation zone. Uh, Taylor, they've now won seven points from three games since sacking Sean Dyche. We all scratched our heads at that one, but some logic in that? I can't believe it. I thought for sure. I thought Burnley would find a way to stay up under Sean Dyche when the the debate was, is it Burnley or is it Everton? And then when they sacked Dyche, I thought, well, that's that. They're preparing for the championship. But here we are. Mark Jackson, uh, Academy Director Paul Jenkins, and Captain Ben Mee have all kind of come together to create this coalition uh, management position. And it has worked really well. It seems like there's a ton of collaboration in how they're approaching training and just sort of setting up key ideas of the team without removing a ton of what made Burnley Burnley. Um, It does seem like Sean Dyche, for as much as we love him, had some peculiarities. He didn't, like he, I think, ran training in a really, really, really kind of systemized way, which meant that it... What what, would you say, Graham? (laughs) He also ate worms. He also ate worms, of course, yes. That was... That was an odd part of training when he would take a break to eat worms. Uh, but, uh, but I think there is something to be said for if you loosen up training a little bit, but you keep the sort of foundation in place, I think it creates a more harmonious squad. Uh, they've changed little aspects of the way they play. I think there's been more patience in possession. Their pa- passing accuracy has improved and where they're kind of utilizing those passes. It's not just hoofing hoofing it long into the channels. They've moved Dwight McNeil from uh, left to right so he can cut inside and use that left foot of his, which is exactly where the goal against Wolves came from, was him playing a really great pass in for Veghorst, who then squares to Vidra. Um, and overall, it just seems like maybe there was just a freshening up of the squad of, of Burnley as a whole. And it's a credit to Mark Jackson that he's gotten them playing the way they have. The moment that really stood out to me, especially in contrast to what we talked about with Everton, um, there's a moment at the very end when uh, Connor Roberts and Nathan Collins are defending very, very deep. And they sort of end up battling Wolves into, I think it's a miscontrol that goes out for a goal kick. And the two of them celebrate that as though they have just scored a goal in the World Cup. And seeing a team defend with that level of intensity and then celebrate defending with that level of of intensity, it shows the fight that is there. And it shows the intensity that Burnley are going to be bringing to these remaining games. So if you're a Burnley fan... Certainly more reason for optimism than you had a few weeks ago, which is still a surprise to me, but credit to them, credit to Mark Jackson. Like cockroaches after an atomic blast, Burnley... Still hanging in there. There we go. Wonderful stuff. Uh, And Keith Richards. And Keith Richards. Cockroaches and Keith Richards. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was about to say something morbid. I'm going to move on. Um, <laughs> we, I did promise a listener, Der Classica Analysis, and we're going to take a very short break and we'll get right there to learn about Bayern Munich's 10th consecutive league title. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're going to turn our attention to the Bundesliga right after we hear from Graham Ruffin, who has just dropped in the advertising break that he did karaoke on his bachelor party at the weekend. Graham, what's your song? Um, I don't know if it's my song, but Depeche Mode just can't get enough. Uh, it cropped yeah. up in, in the playlist. Now, some Scottish football fans listening to that may, may think I've just pinned my colours to the mask, given that that is a fairly famous Celtic song that they play after goals, but it was also equalised by a friend of mine singing Penny Arcade, which is a big Rangers song. So there you go, still staying, staying neutral. All right, no Sweet Caroline or anything, that's what I like to hear. Good stuff. Oh, that, others sung, sung that far too many times for my liking. <laughs> Dude, I, I love, my brother uh, briefly was like a wedding DJ, and the guy who trained him to be a DJ uh, told him, like, you, they, they played records, and he was like, you will need a Sweet Caroline 7-inch. And my brother said, like, there's that's not, like, I'm playing, like, punk weddings. I'm playing, like, a wedding of, like, two people who ride trains in their spare time. Like, there's no chance... And sure enough, all the hardcore punks with tattoos everywhere, the song that got them all dancing is Sweet Caroline. It, it, it is undefeated in terms of getting people to dance uh, and wear pink hats in Boston. Those are the two things it's done really successfully. Yeah, At least you probably did a better job than Tyson Fury singing American Pie after his fight on Saturday <laughs> evening, Graham. Less said about that, the better. Bundesliga fans screaming, come on, get to us now, let's do it. <laughs> RB Leipzig 1, Union Berlin 2. Two goals in the last four minutes for Union in this one, pulling them into sixth place into European control. Uh, yeah, by the way, Union Berlin are in play for Champions League qualification now, which would be an incredible achievement for them. I think they're four points off the top four yeah. now after that win. That would be sensational, given that last year, I remember, their promotion to the Bundesliga for the first time in their history was a big story in itself. So the fact that they're in contention for top four, remarkable. 
Very much, yes. Greuterford won by Leverkusen 4. Uh, Leverkusen were 1-0 down there and fought back tremendously. There was a mad game at Freiburg who drew 3-3 with Gladbach. Gladbach went 2-0 up, then 3-2 down, then a 90th minute equaliser there. Fun stuff in the Bundesliga all round, including Bayern Munich 3, Borussia Dortmund 1 in Der Klassiker. Bayern sealing their 10th consecutive league title, a new record for titles in Europe's top five leagues. Julian Nagelsmann with his first title at age 34 as a coach and Bayern's eighth consecutive win over Dortmund. Taylor, colour me shocked, Bayern won. Yeah, right? Shock of all shocks. And it was against a Dortmund team that had some injuries that were not at their strongest. And I do think this ended up being a much better game for Dortmund than the first maybe 30 minutes made it seem like it was going to be. Because for a moment there, it looked like it was going to be 2-0 in the 29th. Instead, Bayern had to wait all the way until the 34th for it to be 2-0. Uh, and I thought for sure like this was going to finish... 4-0 or something like that. It does finish, what, 3-1 to in the end, but I think Dortmund find their way back into it and made it really, really, really exciting all the way until the very end when Musiala gets the third for Bayern. And so it's credit to Marco Rosa. He makes some smart changes. I think he adjusted to what Bayern were trying to do, but it's also still just Bayern Munich doing Bayern things and finding their way to get a win and Robert Lewandowski finding the back of the net, Thomas Muller having a really... uh Thomas Muller game in how he was kind of conducting things from the central position in that 4-2-3-1. And I thought a player that we haven't talked about a ton when we've talked about Bayern Munich lately, uh, Serge Gnabry had a really impressive game. Obviously has the volley to open things uh, with the great like right thigh to settle, right foot to volley, a great goal from him. He also gets the second one that ends up being disallowed, but then for the the second goal, which would have been the third, uh, the one that actually ended up standing, uh, the Robert Lewandowski goal, it's Gnabry's pressure that makes Zagadou turn the ball over, or kind of force a pass that doesn't come off, and Bayern counterattack swiftly and get a goal from there. So a strong game from Serge Gnabry and a strong season from Bayern Munich, even if it wasn't the strongest or as strong as it maybe could have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tell you what was strong though, Taylor Benjamin Pavard, um, who I'll I, I give him the award for the most dodgy fouls without getting any kind of card in this game. There's a pretty dirty challenge on Julian Brandt, I can recall, and uh, I think he brought Jude Bellingham down in the second half for what looked like a penalty to me. He was on one, yeah. was Pavard, wasn't he, Graham? He was, and that that penalty decision—it's not just me, right? That that should have been a yeah. spot kick. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure I read after, in, in Germany, in the Bundesliga, the referees do a review after the match. And I'm sure I read that the referee, um, either it was the referee for this match or the head referee admitted that it should have been a penalty. And I was just thinking about how in Scotland, how, <laughs> if you had something like that, the you know Scottish football would just explode if you had the two biggest teams in the country and a, and a decision being admitted to, like a yeah. wrong decision being admitted to like that. But yeah, yeah should have been a penalty to, Dor and to Dortmund, but... I felt like Bayern Munich were generally the better team, despite the fact, as Taylor says, Rosa makes some good changes and there was a, a slight resurgence in the, in the second half from, from Dortmund, but it was too little too late. Graham, that's why I have a lot of, uh, not love, but I enjoy Joshua Kimmich occasionally. Uh, and in this game, I like that he, there was no nuance about it. If you're going to concede a penalty, let's just go flying through the opposition player because his foul on Marco, uh, Marco Royce that conceded the penalty that Emre Jean scores it, like it's as blatant of a penalty as I think I've ever seen. He's just like he's not even in the shot, and then when Royce is about to get the ball, Royce is now sort of like parallel to the pitch, and then hits the ground pretty hard. That was a pretty bad foul from Kimmich, who otherwise had a pretty good game. Kimmich did his own research. He decided that was the best way to tackle him. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> was. I was about to say like I love Joshua Kimmich, and I was like, oh no, wait, no, I decidedly do not. I decidedly <laughs> do not, and I don't want to be within six feet of him. Graham, <laughs> Graham, um, with Dortmund here. What can we say about the way they, they, they don't have Bayern's number? Certainly haven't in, in recent contests. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to put this politely. Uh, it, it seems like they cannot handle Bayern's press in a, in a, in a fairly yeah. unique way because it's just maybe, is it just the way Dortmund defend that sort of slightly roller coaster calamitous defend? Well, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> the, their first mistake is Part they don't it. defend. Um, <laughs> and yes, you're right. Unfortunately for Dortmund, it's not just a talent advantage that Bayern Munich have on, have on them. The, the, the tactical matchup is, is pretty terrible for them because um, Dortmund are very vulnerable against teams that play in quick transition and Bayern Munich are most dangerous when they play in quick transition and when they come up against teams that sit in a low defensive block that is when they have issues as we saw against Villarreal in the Champions League 
and uh, Dortmund are just incapable of, of, of doing that. And particularly in the first half in this game, Bayern Munich were just given too much time to get Dortmund turned and running towards their own goal. So it's it's a bad matchup for them. I think in terms of um, where this fixture is next season, there's a good chance that it looks very different next season. So for Dortmund, uh, obviously Erling Haaland looks like he's leaving the club this summer, so they probably need a, a new centre forward. Their greatest need in the transfer market is probably in defence, as I mentioned there, and they have Nicolas Sula coming from Bayern Munich, interestingly enough, and uh, Schlotterbeck, who's a, a young ball-playing centre central defender. Um, he's he's already signed, those two have already signed, so they're coming in for next season. I think they probably need a new midfield anchor to play alongside Jude Bellingham. So there's a lot of areas of Dortmund's team that, that need strengthening, and it feels like the, the way the narrative is at the moment, it feels like they are going to make quite a lot of moves this summer. They'll probably have 75 million euros from selling Alan Haaland to, to help them do that. But also from the Bayern Munich side of things, there's a good chance that this fixture looks different next season. So Lewandowski's future is still up in, in the air and reading between the lines, he wants to play in Spain. He's wanted to play in Spain for a, for a good time. Three years ago, he actually changed his agent to help him get a move to La Liga and it didn't happen. And now that he's unhappy with the contract negotiations at Bayern Munich, they're only offering him a, a year extension due to the fact that he's over 30 years old and that's the club policy. He wants two, three years. And so if Bayern Munich are not going to give him um, that extension, it feels like he could be off to Barcelona defensively. I've already mentioned Sula, has, uh, he's, he's already going to Dortmund. I think David Alaba has been a huge miss for Bayern Munich this season. They've not really replaced him. Upamecano hasn't really hit the ground running, although you probably don't want to write him off just yet. He's obviously got a lot of talent. So maybe there are some uh, some defenders coming into that squad in Bayern Munich, and then Corentin Tolisso is out of contract this summer. And Bayern Munich already needed some depth in central midfield with uh, Kimmich and Goretzka missing spells of this season through injury and and uh, other reasons in, in Kimmich's case. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it feels like both of these clubs are on the brink of um, a sort of evolution of their squad. And I'm, I'm very interested to see... I'm very interested to see where Bayern Munich go, actually, because reading some of the post-match, co- post-match comments from the players in Nagelsmann, there wasn't as much jubilation as you might expect for a team that had just won their 10th straight league title. And I think that's down to how the season has panned out for Bayern Munich. At the turn of the year, there was a real sense that this could be an incredible season for them in both the Bundesliga and the Champions League, where they were one of the the favourites. They then fell to uh, Villarreal in the Champions League. They've suffered a number of poor results in the Bundesliga as well. They got thumped by Gladbach in the Cup as well. So it says a lot about the position that Bayern are in as a club right now, that winning a a 10th straight league title feels slightly underwhelming. But as I say, I think there's a lot of changes coming this summer. I think Nagelsmann, because he has this reputation as the best young coach in in Europe, he's got a longer leash than someone like Niko Kovac does, who, keep in mind, he won a double in his first season at Bayern Munich and was still sacked after that. But it feels like Nagelsmann is going to get a bit more time to put his stamp on this squad and this summer is going to be an important one for him. It, it, It says a lot about Bayern, Graham, as you say, but does it say a lot about the league as well in that this was not a classic Bayern Munich season by any stretch, but they still won this league title relatively easily? I mean, the 50 plus one system, for example, in, in Germany gets a lot of praise for, for the equity it provides. But in a, if you flip the coin, it doesn't really provide equity because it just helps Bayern stay strong and you know limits the amount that competitors can can bolster their ranks. Yeah, and I think German football does have an issue generally with competing with the the Premier League and La Liga in terms of broadcast revenues as well. So if you look at what the Bundesliga gets from um, ESPN in the States compared to the other European leagues, it's a drop in the ocean. And that there is a real concern from, from Germany that they are going to get left behind. And Bayern Munich are really the only club that have the power to compete at, at Champions League level. I think in terms of the parity of the league, the Bundesliga is great from third place all the way down. Let's keep in mind that Gladbach were getting sucked into a relegation battle a few weeks ago. Stuttgart, Stuttgart are down there. Hertha Berlin are down there. And then you have Freiburg up in the top four. You have, uh, as we mentioned, Union Berlin in contention. So there's there's a lot of parity and excitement in, in that section of the league. But you're right. Bayern Munich winning 10 league titles in a row does not reflect well on, on uh, German football. And there has kind of been a discussion in German football about how they solve that. It was just a few weeks ago that Oliver Kahn, who is the, the Bayern Munich 
I think he's the CEO. He's certainly in an executive position at, at Bayern Munich. He was talking about maybe it would be good for German football to have a playoff system like MLS, like MLS has with the, with the MLS Cup, which is slightly unusual for Bayern, a Bayern figure to say that, given that the, the current format is working so well for them. But that reflects how there is a wider discussion going on in German football. And even Bayern Munich, with all the success that they've had, they recognise the, the trouble there is at the moment in the Bundesliga. What do you think, Taylor? Playoffs, two nine-team conferences in Germany? You, you, you on for that? I mean, whatever allows Bayern Munich to find a way to eventually continue to win and continue to sign players on free transfers that they have no business signing. Yeah, I think as long as we keep that kind of status quo in place, we can experiment however we want. I think everyone will be happy. I just hope that they don't sign Erling Haaland. That's still a chance, right? It feels increasingly less likely that that will happen, but it also feels still possible that they will find a way to make that happen, especially those Lewandowski wants out rumors that happened. I don't know if there is any... Any credence to those at all, but I did find myself wondering if that was because they told him, hey, we're bringing in Erling Haaland, so uh, hope you don't mind. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Well, congrats to Bayern for winning yet yeah. another one. Uh, my favorite moment of the game happening after the game when Thomas Muller of threw beer all over Bastian Schweinsteiger, who was doing TV commentary for the local broadcaster. Uh, Schweinsteiger didn't seem to enjoy it, despite probably many times playing uh, a role in those festivities over the years. Uh, let's round up a little more of the soccer over the weekend. We'll go to Spain. Graham Rotham, we had the Copa del Rey final in Seville. Mm-hmm. Manuel Pellegrini in his tracksuits. His Real Batiste beating Valencia <laughs> on penalties to lift the title. It was 1-1 after normal time. Uh, 5-4 on pens. Batiste's first major trophy since 2005. Graham, did you see the picture of Claudio Brava, the goalkeeper, smoking a cigar in the locker room afterwards? It was glorious. <laughs> I did. There were a lot of good... Uh, imagery moments, pictures and and iconic moments from this match including, as you say, Bravo and the Cigar Joaquin winning this this trophy for the second time, the only the he's the first player in Betis' history to win a trophy twice for the club which is which is quite something and Pellegrini in that tracksuit is just iconic <laughs> I love that tracksuit I love the Betis kits actually they're made by Kappa and they're just they're just really classic and, and really smart this season so this was this was a very enjoyable match between two clubs desperate to win a trophy uh, Valencia obviously have, they've won the, the Copa del Rey fairly recently in 2019 but going further back there hasn't been all that much success for them domestically and, and Betis hadn't won a, a cup since 2005 so sometimes when you get Copa del Rey games between the big teams in, in Spain it can it can often feel much like the FA Cup in England it can feel secondary to the league in the Champions League but that certainly wasn't the case here the Cartuja and, and Seville was was packed out for for this match and I thought Betis were the most the more proactive team and they probably deserved to win the match and it's a symbol of what Pellegrini has has achieved since taking over Betis a couple of seasons ago as I say their first cup since 2005 they're still in the hunt for a Champions League qualification spot after some Sevilla and Atleti and I guess Barcelona stumbles as well they're still in that picture um, and if they were to the, to finish in the top four and win a cup that would be a sensational season for for Betis uh, from a US perspective, obviously it wasn't great to see Yunus Musa miss the decisive penalty for Valencia, but I was personally pleased for Real Betis. They're, they're a big historic club that hasn't had much joy in recent years, but they have a good team now, a good manager, and as I say, even better kits and tracksuits, yeah. and that always makes me happy. You'll have to see it. Taylor, I don't know if you saw the tracksuit. It was very poorly worn nuts in the <laughs> Bada Bing kind of vibe. Oh, yeah, it absolutely was. That is a great way to explain it, Ryan, because I found myself confused by uh by Pellegrini in a tracksuit but I, I think that that is the kind of vibe we're going for and maybe that is where he would feel at home maybe that's how we reboot the Sopranos because many things of Newark did not get the job done ah, indeed well do you tell you who else didn't get the job done Barcelona no uh, they so lost uh, to Rio Vercano 1-0 at the Camp Nou this weekend uh missing countless chances in this game they've now lost three consecutive home games for only the second time in their history their third home loss this month uh Cadiz and yeah. uh Eintracht Frankfurt losing uh, uh winning at the Camp Nou I should say um Graham Real Madrid 15 points clear they only need one more point to claim the title uh where is the swing on t- in terms of Barcelona good Barcelona bad at the moment I'm finding it hard <laughs> to keep track this season yeah, the pendulum has swung back and forth wildly over the last few weeks, and and this performance was a, a throwback to what we saw from Barcelona under Xavi in the early days of his tenure, where they just didn't have the creativity or ideas to break down a, a low defensive block. 
I think some of the refereeing in this game was weird. Barcelona sh- certainly should have had a penalty for what was a, a blatant push on the, the back of Gavi. That was the, the clearest bad decision. And there were a few other bad decisions here and, here and there as well. But I think it's fair to say Barcelona at the moment, they are missing Pedri. Because since he got injured against Frankfurt, Barcelona have gone out of the Europa League. They, as you say, Ryan, they've also lost at home to Cadiz and, and Rayo Valcano now. And it just feels like there's a lack of creativity. As I say, they're, they're, it's very much reminiscent of when Xavi first came in. They're looking for the wings and they're just kind of putting crosses into the middle and Luke de Jong comes on late to try and get a, another late goal, which has become his trademark this season. But the final ball just wasn't good enough. And incidentally, the last time that Rayo, Rayo Valcano won at the Camp Nou was in, was in 2000. So it's 22 years since they won away to Barcelona. Wandy Ramos was the coach of their team back then. And Julian Lopetegui was their goalkeeper in 2000 when they, they won at, the, at Camp Nou. So that kind of tells you how long it's been since they, they claimed their, this result. And of course, they beat Barcelona in their home fixture this season. So they've, they've done the double over Barca this season. Wowzers. Six-pointer for Rayo Connor. That's what you like to hear. Uh, Syria, Lazio 1, Milan 2. Milan are two points clear at the top with four games left playing Italy a last gasp winner from Sandro Tonali settling this one after Chiro Mibile put Lazio ahead Olivier Giroud with the equaliser in that one a big big test for Milan past here not an easy place to come after all to Rome uh, Inter had a 3-1 victory over Roma on Mourinho's return uh, to the San Siro to face the team he won the treble for, of course. Uh, Roma were 12 games unbeaten going into this one, so into were top for Saturday at least. Uh, a good test pass for them, you could say, as well. The craziest result of the weekend, gents. I don't know if you saw this. Empoli 3, Napoli 2. Napoli were winning 2-0 in the 80th minute, and Empoli got three goals to win it for their first win of 2022. Empoli last won in mid-December, the same time that AFC Wimbledon last won a game. Uh, unlike AFC Wimbledon, Empoli are not going to be relegated this season, though. Uh, Napoli tweeting after the game that the club has decided that starting Tuesday, the team will remain together on a training camp until further notice. Napoli would like to confirm that the decision regarding the training camp was made by coach Luciano Spalletti, and the club agrees with it. Graham, some passive-aggressive tweeting from Napoli. We love to see that. And yet another, you're not allowed to go home from work situation for their players. Yeah, so what are the logistics of that? They're they're not allowed to. Are they allowed to leave the training pitch at all? They're just spending twenty like days on end on this training pitch so that they for, as a punishment for I'm, that collapse. I'm picturing it like they're in military barracks. Bar- barracks. It's like full metal jacket situation. They're sleeping on stretchers, kind of thing. I right. don't know. Okay, seems reasonable. <laughs> Well, worked a treat last time. Anyway, uh, Juve playing at Sassuolo later tonight as we record. So Juve still in the top four mix as well. Uh, over to MLS uh, for Joe Lowry's MLS Gorda. Not featuring Joe Lowry this week, unfortunately. <laughs> Dallas in the Texas Derby got a 2-1 win over Houston. Eastern Conference leaders Philadelphia were held by Club de Foot Montreal, as I like to call them now. Big win for San Jose, 4-3 over Seattle, a 90th minute penalty to win it and uh, to complete a hat-trick for Christian Espinosa in that one as well. And a big win for uh, 10-man NYCFC, 5-4 over Toronto in New York, that one. Um, and LAFC still leading the West with a 2-1 win over the second-best Queen City, Cincinnati. Uh, in the Any Other Business section, a couple of league titles to point to. PSG uh, getting a 1-1 draw against 10-man Long to win the French Championship for the eighth time in 11th season, their 10th championship overall, uh, regaining the title, of course, which they lost to Lille last year. Leo Messi scoring the title-winning goal. Uh, curious situation, though, Graham. Ultras, uh, PSG Ultras leaving the stadium 15 minutes early, still apparently outraged by their team's Champions League exit. Uh, and fans booing the team as well. Booing them as they win a league title, Graham. Uh, fun times for him and apparently for Pochettino, whose days appear to be numbered. Yeah, he, he could he could be out. At least they, they, they didn't sack him before he could win his first league title. That would, that would have been cruel on, uh, on Poch. But to, to, to just provide a little bit of balance on what the, the PSG ultras are protesting against, yes, they, they are unhappy with what the... The club has, has done in the Champions League and the lack of progress that has been made there. If you thought, if, if maybe you were of the belief that that was the only thing they're unhappy with, you could call them spoiled, but they, they are, they're wanting basically PSG to go back to their roots slightly. They've basically said to Leonardo and, and QSI, look, you've tried your way of signing the superstars and that hasn't worked. So how about we give more chances to a lot of the Parisian 
wins that come through the system at PSG. As we've mentioned, I think, before in the show, PSG have one of the best youth academies in Europe. And you look at a lot of players around Europe who have come through PSG and they've gone on to be superstars. Christopher Nkuku has won this season at RB Leipzig was never given a chance at PSG. So their ultras, yes, they're unhappy with the Champions League performances, but they also just want a a different approach taken in in the front office and they want that team to be rooted slightly more in their community going forward from this point. Yeah, good luck with that, guys. Let's see how that one passes (laughs) out. Yeah. Uh, One more title to speak of, Taylor. Brendan Aronson's RB Salzburg winning the Austrian League for their ninth straight title with a 5-0 home win over Austria Wied and Mr. Aronson scoring the fourth goal. Bravo, Brendan Taylor. Brendan Taylor? That's not his name. I mean, he might have he might have another sibling named Taylor, but it would be spelled C-A-Y-L-E-R. Taylor Taylor (laughs) Aronson is how they would (laughs) definitely do that one. And maybe he will also win a title with RB Salzburg because that is almost as predictable as Bayern Munich winning a title is RB Salzburg. Less predictable is where Brendan Aronson goes from here. My guess would be he gets a move this summer. Uh, Where he ends up, we shall see. But either way, it's been uh, a solid time in Europe for him thus far. Uh, Long may it continue. (laughs) Is there talk of him uh, doing an intercompany transfer, Taylor? Uh, I think the, the the biggest talking points have been him to Leeds. Uh, that was the uh, one in January, and it seems like that's going to be the main one when the transfer window opens back up. But yeah, there's always that connection to Leipzig, and then there seems to be a pretty strong connection to Dortmund from Salzburg as well. So you never know where he could go, but I think all of them would be exciting options. They would indeed. And an exciting weekend review wrapped up. That's it for this one, guys. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your intrepid behavior in this one. Right back at you, my friend. I think I'm not quite sure what that means, but I will say I hope by the time we speak next uh, that Antonio Conte and Zidane Zidane have taken over at PSG and we get an even more chaotic situation than we already had. Just picture it. Sounds exciting. I love it. Uh, Graham Rutherford, thank you so much for post-bachelor partying, partying, I should say, with us. <laughs> thank you, Ryan. I'm away to uh, soak my head in an ice bath for the next few hours. <laughs> as you should. As you should. Listener, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back on the feed soon. But for now, bye. Slash it!